Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod, and found it to be twelve thousand stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be any curse, 
The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in the scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the scroll, because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right, and let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in the scroll. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in the scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Thank you, Rhea. Well, y'all, we did it. <laughs> uh, if you have been with us, then you know that we have been in a series called Kingdom Come, walking through the book of Revelation. And today I think marks week 23, sermon 23 of this uh, beautiful, but I will say at times very trying, series that we have been in. I think 23 sermons, multiple classes, lots of tears, uh, but it has definitely been, if you've been with us, one of the most rewarding, though I think difficult, series, texts, books that we have worked through as a community. And before we jump into like the heart of this passage and the implications of this passage for us, because we've been in it so long and because it has been such a significant series for us, I thought it would be helpful just to begin with a little bit of a recap. What have we covered? What have been some of the big themes? Don't act like you remember all the way back in May. And so we'll just do a little recap, catch us up on what has been happening. So if you remember from the very beginning of the book, Revelation is a letter that is written to seven real churches. 
That's the first and most important context about the book of Revelation. Sometimes Revelation feels like it is some kind of mysterious code to unlock. And though there is mysteries abounding throughout the book of Revelation, it is like so much of the New Testament, a letter written to churches who are trying to figure out what it means to be Jesus followers in a very real world. That's the immediate context of the book of Revelation. It is a letter written by an early church leader. Much of tradition says the apostle John. Um, Some suggest it's a different figure throughout church history. We're not exactly sure. But this elder of the church writes a letter to these seven communities who are trying to navigate life as Jesus followers in the empire of Rome. And Rome is a difficult place to be a Jesus follower because it is a place of contested worship. Who is God or what is God is contested. Who has power or what is power is contested. How things get done in the world, how things should be accomplished in the world is contested. The ethics, the beliefs, the hopes, the dreams of Rome and the early church are contested territory, which means it is tricky to know how to live in that kind of contest of beliefs and hopes and dreams and worship. And it's maybe even trickier to navigate that contestation because Roman life for early Christians feels like normal life. You know, we read the book of Revelation so far removed, and we look at Rome, or we look at the context, and it feels very strange and, um, like, different to us. But that's because we live in a different world. But if you were a first-century Christian living in Rome, it would have felt like normal life. The things that John is critiquing throughout the book of Revelations are like normal Roman markets, Normal Roman politics, normal Roman propaganda, the stories, the habits, the rhythms of a very normal society. And for early Christians who grew up in the empire, this feels normal. And so what Revelation is trying to do is to pull back the layers of normal and unveil something to us. That's what revelation means. Apocalypsis does not mean destruction. It means to unveil something. And that is exactly what the book of Revelation is trying to do. It's trying to pull back the layers of what we see as normal, what we think as normal, and show us that something else is happening under the surface of this normal situation. It's a now very famous speech, but um, David Foster Wallace, the late author, when he gave his speech to Kenyon College, tells a story about two fish that are swimming. Have you heard this story? Oh, great. Love a fresh audience. I came up with this story then. Uh, <laughs> so David Foster Wallace is telling this story, and it's about two fish that are swimming. And one day they come a- along an older fish, and the older fish looks at these two fish and says, hey boys, how's the water? And the two younger fish are like, oh, it's great, thanks. And they swim along, and then a little bit later, one of the younger fish looks at the other fish, and he's like, what the hell is water? Revelations is trying to show us what water is. It's trying to show us that the air we breathe, the system we live in, the world we occupy, the systems and structures and institutions that feel just 
normal, that we don't even pay attention to, that there is actually something else going on, something sometimes that is beautiful and amazing that God is doing, and sometimes that is nefarious and evil. Revelations is trying to unveil this world to us, pull back the layer, show us what is water. That everything is not normal in this world. That even Rome, this empire that the early Christians are trying to navigate, for the writer of Revelation, it is a new iteration of another kingdom that's existed over and over and over again. And the language for that kingdom throughout Revelation is Babylon, which was an actual kingdom that existed in the ancient world. That ancient kingdom had conquered Israel and had kind of become the symbol or stereotype of evil empires that conquers nations. And so in Revelation, the writer John says that Rome is like a Babylon. But there will be other Babylons that Christians have to confront, other Babylons that Christians have to deal with, because Rome is not really the issue, though it does things that are problematic and evil. The real issue is the powers behind Rome that there is a system called Babylon that continues to pop up, that there are beasts, which are these counterfeit power players throughout the book of Revelation, and even a dragon who is referred to as that old snake from Genesis 3, whose lies and stories and myths seduce us, lead us into deception, and continue to animate the systems of injustice and brokenness and sin in our world. So Revelation is trying to pull back the layer to show us the truth so that we can see clearly, so that we can see the water around us, but not just see it so that we can witness to something else. All throughout the book of Revelation, it'll go, like if you just see the rhythm of the book, it'll go one moment where it's like describing something awful and then it'll switch to talking about the church. And then it'll go back to describing something that's happening in the mysterious cosmic world using evocative, poetic language to challenge us, jar us, wake us up to the realities of the world around us. And then it'll switch to talking about the people of God. And the reason is that Revelation is about being God's people in this world. It is not some future story, though it does talk about the future. It is primarily a story about our own world. And it is instructions for Christians in this world about how to be Christians in this world. Christians who are navigating life in Babylon. Christians who are navigating life in the midst of an empire animated by the beasts and the dragons. Christians who are trying to figure out what does it look like to follow the Lamb in a world that says we shouldn't. In an empire that says lambs are weak. Revelation is trying to show us the truth so that we might witness to the truth, that we might be an alternative community that tells a different story, that makes real in our proclamation and our practice and even our bodies a story of a different kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. So Revelation's unveils something to us, it reveals something to us, it shows us the truth so that we might witness to the truth, so that we might participate in something different. And as it shows us what is wrong with the world, which is often the narrative that's happening in Revelation, 
it also gives us visions of what can be right in the world. So we get the dark and we get the heavy and we get the evil that's being named, but we also get the beautiful that can be possible. Revelations is trying to paint for us a picture of the possible that is coming. Sometimes it doesn't feel very likely and sometimes it feels hard to imagine. And so Revelations gives it evocative imagery in big words because it wants us to gain an imagination for what God is up to in the world. Because if all we ever see is the Roman story, our hearts and our minds and our imaginations get restricted. They get suffocated. We need a hope that's bigger than the one that Babylon gives us, a hope that's bigger than even the one our own country and culture gives us. We need a hope animated by a world to come. We see this popping up in different moments throughout Revelation, especially in the last few weeks. We saw the fall of Babylon, which is an image of hope that there is a moment where this system, this civilization, this institution of evil can and will end. And then last week we saw the final battle. But it's a war unlike any that we have ever seen before. But in that moment, we see that not only Babylon falls, but even the beasts and the dragon, even they'll be undone. But God is not interested in just ending evil. God is interested in bringing renewal. And upending what is broken in the world is only one small piece of God's much larger Mission. And so as we enter into Revelation 21 through 22, we get this new picture of hope. It's the biggest one maybe we've ever seen in the Bible, the biggest one especially in the book of Revelation, an image of what God is up to, what God is accomplishing in the world. And it is a kaleidoscope of biblical references, hopes, implications, promises, innuendos from Old Testament moments, New Testament moments that all come together in this one big picture of what is possible. And so to help us understand it, because there's a lot going on in this vision, instead of trying to explain it, I thought, well, we could watch a video that might just show us what this check section of Scripture is trying to do. So this is a video from the Bible Project, guys, and then we'll circle back up. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but... This idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning. 
where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world, and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out, and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right, so we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus, and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice 
has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's face to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. I love that video and the artwork, but they gave Jesus such a gnarly neared, like a really intense neck beard that I think was offensive. (laughs) So what we see from that video and through the whole story of the Bible is that God is and has been on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. Sometimes our hope of salvation, our hope of rescue, our hope of reconciliation gets reduced to something much smaller than that. That it's individual salvation, which is true and good, or it's individual uh, reconciliation with God, which is good and true. But the full picture of the gospel, the good news of the story of Scripture, is the full reconciliation of heaven and earth. It is the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer that would earth become like it is on heaven? Would this world be made right and new? Would God's presence once again be restored to this place, not mediated through temples or tabernacles or even priests, but open and accessible to all of us? The hope of the Bible is the restoration of God's world to our own that God's presence would dwell here, that we would be restored as God's people and this place would once again become the dwelling place of God and humanity. It's that ultimate fulfillment of the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that finds itself playing out throughout all the story of the Bible, getting hopes and glimmers and pictures until it is fully manifested in Revelation 21 and 22. Throughout our series in Revelation, we've talked about concepts like justice and redemption and healing. And this picture that we get is justice. It is redemption. Sometimes in our mind, justice is simply the ending of what is wrong. But for God, justice always moves past that to the restoration of what was wronged, to healing, to renewal, And in Revelations 21 and 22, that is the picture that we get, a picture of all things being made right. It is not simply evil ending or Babylon being undone or the beast being thrown into the fire. It is instead God's kingdom coming, the renewal of all things, the end of death and tears and heartbreak. It is about reconciled relationships. It is about healing hearts and it is about renewing all this world. This distinction, I think, is really important for us to understand between just ending evil and this renewal of all things. Because sometimes as we read the book of Revelation, 
it leads us, I think, into passivity or almost like a resignation. Like either God, this is kind of the tradition I grew up in, that God's going to burn the whole thing. So why does it matter what we do here? That leads to like almost a resignation that my goal in life, my purpose in this life is just to wait. It's to wait for God to destroy the world. Maybe I'll tell people about the story of God destroying the world so that they won't be destroyed also. Leads to like a resignation or a passivity. But Revelation is not given to tell us the world will end, but that it will actually begin again. And that is not meant to distract us or to pacify us or to lead us to resignation or withdrawal, but actually the exact opposite. It is meant to inspire our living right here and right now. As we said at the beginning, Revelation is written to a group of churches that are struggling to figure out life in this moment. And in the same way, Revelation is given to us so that we will know how to live right here and right now, so that we might have some vision of what is possible beyond the stories and myths of our own moments, so that we might have some reason to live right here and right now. This morning, as I was like kind of praying through the sermon, I saw a quote from a pastor in New York named Rich Velotis that I thought was really appropriate to what we're talking about. He said this, to pray thy kingdom come, Thy will be done is not language of passivity and resignation, i.e., God, there's nothing we can do, so please fix the world. This is language of participation. Of God, there is much we can do, but only in your power. Revelation is meant to call us into participation, to partner with the power of God that is at work in this world renewing and restoring all things. What does revelations mean for our lives? Well, revelations, as we have said, gives us hope of another world to come so that our lives here and now will be animated and empowered. In Revelations 21, verse 3, John, who's seeing this vision, describes this. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and God will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. All of our lives are animated by some vision of something. Don't think it's a choice that we make. I think it's just a reality that we live by. And sometimes that vision is as big as if I can just get through the week, I can rest on Saturday. It's pretty compelling, to be honest. For some of us, it's, if I can get through school or get this promotion, then I can provide better for my family, or I can move in this direction or advance in this way. For some of us, it can be if I advocate in this way, I can make access more available. We have a vision that animates the life that we live, some 
goal, you could call it, some purpose, you could name it. And those are good and right. But with those visions, the Christian life is to be animated by a hope for renewal. By a belief that something so much bigger is coming on the horizon. The writer of Hebrews describes Jesus' own mission and our own invitation into the mission of Jesus this way, saying in Hebrews 12, verse 1 through 3, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that has been marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, the joy of what? Of reconciliation, of renewal. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, who then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition for sinners so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus endures the cross knowing what comes at the end of it. That there is a moment of renewal, that there is a kingdom on the horizon, that there is a hope beyond our possible and present that is about to break into the earth around us. And for it, Jesus endured the cross. Church, what is it that we endure for? What story animates our life? What gives us hope? What gives us power? What gives us significance and meaning to the decisions and the actions and the habits of our life? There's lots of good ones. There's lots of good ones. But the Christian story is meant to animate something even bigger. I've told this story before, but Martin Luther King Jr., when he was giving a speech at a bus boycott rally, said this so beautifully. He said, quote, There is still a voice crying out in terms that echo across the generation, saying, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. King goes on to say, The end of their movement is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of a beloved community. Beloved community is a term that King would often use to describe the renewed church or the kingdom. There is something animating, something empowering, something giving vision in that person's life that enabled such massive and beautiful acts But Dr. Martin Luther King always understood it as being more than just what happens in this moment, but what was possible beyond it. So, Missia, what animates our lives? What gives us hope for endurance? What gives us a picture that is worth fighting for? What counters the story of Babylon? What pushes against the narrative of Rome? What contradicts the stories and inheritances that we often receive from the culture, the society, the systems, and the histories around us, even our own, that we bring to this conversation? What presses against it and offers us something more? 
So Revelation gives us a hope that can animate our life. And as it gives us a hope that can animate our own existence, Revelation also shows us that the lives we live here actually really matter. Sometimes, again, Revelation is meant to make it look like this life does not matter. But this picture in 21 and 22, I think, reinforces how much this moment does matter to God. This is a really beautiful moment that comes in Revelations 21, verse 22 through 23. John says, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine, for the glory of God gives it light. It's this beautiful image of God's presence restored, and it's healing the nations and being a light to the world. But then it says this, which I think often gets missed. Verse 24, And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into the city. What a fascinating statement. The kings of the earth will bring the splendor of their nations into the city of God. Writer Andy Crouch describes this this way. The glory of the nations or the splendor of the nations will include our best realizations of the potentiality of God's world. The best use of minerals, of sound, of color, of thermodynamics even. And it will be summed up as a praise because the ultimate meaning of the world is love. The kingdom of God is filled with the splendors of the world. What a marvelous idea. What a marvelous idea. I don't know if you've seen the movie or read the book, but there's a movie that came out, I think in 2014, called Monument Men, uh, which is like Ocean's Eleven, but in World War II. I think it has like the exact same cast. But it's based on a true story that in World War II, uh, in England and America, a group of historians, professors, and museum curators were gathered together to go save works of like, majestic art in Europe that were about to be destroyed or put away by Nazi Germany. And so they go on these like, really adventurous missions, kind of without the support of the army, to rescue works of art. And that's all I see when I read this passage. Is that Jesus is like the monument men of World War II on a mission to rescue the very best of our world so that it can live in splendor in the new kingdom. God is not interested in destroying the things that we've done. God is interested in redeeming and renewing. Now, not all things enter the kingdom of God and not all things enter unchanged. The text talks about how Weapons that are built for war will be beaten into plowshares. So there is a redeeming work that happens to the things that we make. But the work of human hands, image bearers, gets to enter into the kingdom. The splendor of the nations adorns the halls of God's city. But what qualifies as splendor in God's eyes, is often very different than what qualifies as splendor in our own. Will famous paintings make it into the new city? Probably. But my guess is there will also be many works that have just been written out of history. Works that our own culture don't deem as high culture. Or works that never had a chance to see the light of day. 
things that you hid pretty deep in your heart or in your basement or on your computer. The work of image bearers that they never themselves decided were works of splendor. God sees all those things and they all get to enter into the kingdom. What we do in this moment and in this place has significance to the work that God is accomplishing. It matters in this moment because as we participate in what God is doing, we make real the kingdom of God. We witness to the thing that God is doing. But this text also shows us the things that we work on, the things that we make, the things that we dedicate our life to have this kind of like eternal potentiality to them. To be brought even into the kingdom of God. And that can actually maybe backfire a bit and lead to a lot of pressure. And so I think the, the final thing that Revelation does for us is that it produces, just as much as it gives our lives meaning and significance, and as it fills us with a vision that is worth fighting for, Revelation also produces in us a kind of holy contentment. Because just as we know that our works do matter, we also know that we are waiting on Jesus who is the perfecter of this work. And so like gardeners who tend to a plot of land, there's just a season in which what you do is you tend, but you cannot force a harvest. So you have to wait. And I think that kind of waiting produces in us a holy tension that's both a contentment and also a bit of a holy discontentment. That there is things we do, there is things that we're called to participate in. There is a work that we are invited into. But there's also a restfulness that we are invited into as we know that God is the finisher of this work. This tension enables us to work with meaning, to advocate with purpose, but also to rest in trust. And no other story enables this kind of life to live so fully grounded in the present, but with an eye on the horizon. And what that does for us is it enables us to live, I think, more fully witnessing to the kingdom right here and right now. It enables us to name evil that does not compare to God's kingdom, to call it a counterfeit, to name it as Babylon, because now we're gaining a vision of what is coming. It enables us to participate in God's work in the kingdom, to live it out, to witness to it, to give it our best. But it also invites us to rest. To rest and trust that God is and will bring about their kingdom. Monsieur, what if we believed that story? What might be possible in our own lives, our own hearts. Monsieur, what if we gained an imagination for the kingdom as big as the one that Revelation has for us? What might that do to our day-to-day? -day? What might that do to our anxiety that is like ceaselessly trying to find some significance? And what might that do to our sense of work and family? Monsieur, what if? 
Today I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to invite us to the table. And the table is the place in which we take that question of the coming kingdom and our hope in the kingdom and our tension as we wait for it and we give it some place to be practiced. It's a practice that sort of merges our own lives now with our hope for what is to come. As we take the bread, we know that we are welcomed right here, right now into the kingdom, but that we also are pointing towards something bigger and further to come. So, Missy, would you take that question, what if? What if we believed the story of Revelation? What if we believed this picture of the kingdom? Would you let it drive you to the table? What if? What if, Missio? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this vision of your kingdom. It's so big that it is almost like unsettling in some ways to hope in something that large. It's hard for me to get my faith around, let alone my mind or my heart. And so today, Jesus, as we gather at the table and as we continue to worship and as we sing, would you press on us in a way that allows us to see anew your kingdom, your work? Would you give us a vision for what you're doing that animates our life here and now, that gives us hope to live for, meaning to inspire, a joy that causes endurance, but also a restfulness? that presses against anxiety or shame or judgment and lets us rest in you. God, today give us a vision of you so that we, with your spirit, might pray, come Lord Jesus. Jesus, come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.